Welcome to Premiere the Play, bringing the theater from our homes to yours. Premiere the Play, new theatrical works from the pen to the page to the podcast. Welcome to this week's special bonus episode of Premiere the Play. I'm Rebecca Lynn, and today we'll be speaking with the playwright of And Then Galatea Laughed, Scott Cooper. Scott has extensive theatrical experience that spans writing, producing, directing, and performing with a long list of Chicago's finest companies, including Steppenwolf, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, Theo Ubique, Prop Theater, City Lit, and many more. His plays have been produced in theaters across the country and internationally. And for me, it's been an honor, Scott, to work on Galatea for Premiere the Play. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right in. What brought you to write a play about George Bernard Shaw and the original production of Pygmalion? Well, I have sort of a long-standing relationship with Shaw. The first time I read any Shaw, I was about 10 years old. What I remember about the reading at that time was not the play itself, but the epilogue and just how long and, and sort of humorous that was. Uh, my first sort of connection to Shaw as a performer was in college when I was cast in a production of Miss Alliance. Uh, and the director turned out to be my favorite professor. So several years ago, uh, Doc got sick. And um, when he got sick, I got sort of nostalgic for Shaw and sat down and read all of his major works. And that left me wanting to know more about the playwright. So I picked up a biography and then I picked up another biography. And it just sort of led me through that era of um, London theater. From there, I, I picked up uh, a Mrs. Patrick Campbell biography and where their lives sort of intersected, it was interesting to kind of take note of the two different tones that were represented in these biographies on their relationship. Uh, at some point I came across a book titled Shaw's Women, I think it was, that sort of cataloged his, his history with women in London society. And based on all of that reading, I hit upon a life or a moment in Stella's life where she suddenly became bedridden um, and was bedridden for several months. I want to say two, maybe three months. And it was noted in almost all of the biographies that George Bernard Shaw had to be dragged from her bedside. Um, now, the reason. The reason that was given for her her confinement was exhaustion. But if you read kind of between the lines in the biographies, it's not hard to imagine that what happened there was a late in life miscarriage. And based my supposition based on my reading is that if that were the case, it could have been Shaw's baby, which would then sort of explain a lot of his attitudes towards her and her expectations of him later in their relationship. Um, and so I came across uh, sort of a chronicling of the production of Pygmalion and 
decided that this was the moment that I wanted to really kind of tell my story. Beautiful. I love that. So it's true that these three characters were real people. So whenever you adapt a true story or real characters from history, you're going to have to take some artistic license, right? Mm -hmm. How much factual history were you able to maintain while developing the relationships between these three historic figures? Well, a lot of it is based on supposition. And uh, there's not a lot of historical documentation of uh, Sir Henry Beerbaum Tree's actual life. Uh, and there's certainly no, there's no real documentation of the producing of this play. So a lot of it is supposition, but a lot of what they talk about uh, and the events that lead up to this moment the play is depicting actually did happen. Now, they didn't always happen in the order that I've placed them, but they did happen. What I found particularly uh, sort of ironic is I had begun writing this play before I had done any reading on Tree. Uh, and I think I maybe was in my third draft and was taking a break from that when I started to read his biography and discovered that the theater where they produced Pygmalion actually did have a personal residence built into the dome of the theater. I thought I had invented that, but that actually, that actually was a thing. So, uh, I would, I would say that it, the play is definitely true to the spirit of the time, and I'd say better than 50% of it is actually historically accurate. Yeah, with all the sordid history between Shaw and Stella, why did you choose to focus on this one moment in time, the final rehearsal before the opening night of Pygmalion? Well, I sort of think that all plays are the story of the moment in time when the central character's life changes forever. And Shaw's relationship with Stella up to, say, the confinement uh, was very idealistic, um, as was most of his relationships with uh, London society women. He, he built friendships with all of the most beautiful, all of the wealthiest women in London. Uh, and he, he doggedly pursued Stella. They didn't actually meet for a long time. They corresponded for a while, as he did with most of the women. Uh, but their it became apparent that their relationship could never really mature. And this is why Stella takes the actions that she does in the play, uh, which is actually historically accurate. Um, they were in production she, just before opening. She disappeared without explanation. No one could find her and came back and announced that she had married uh, the ex-husband of Winston Churchill's mother. There was, there's, there's a connection to the Churchill family there, and Stella herself was not above a little social climbing. So to me, that moment is the moment when their relationship irrevocably changed to take on a different tenor, from, from something of a lighthearted romance to more, much more 
realistic relationship between the two. Yeah, we definitely see that shift in the play. Now, based on just the things we've talked about so far, it seems like this is all very dramatic, right? The change in these characters' lives and all these things. But you've undoubtedly written a comedy, and writing comedy is tricky. Can you describe your process and approach to the material? Well, there's a saying that says every play teaches the playwright how to write that play. So there is no particular one approach. I have sort of distilled a a very generalized process. But like I said, with this play in particular, it began with just developing a, a passion in the time period and doing a lot of reading. Uh, I I read all of Shaw's major works. I've, I've only actually seen one production of Pygmalion, uh, and I've seen one production of My Fair Lady. Uh, it it really it, in this particular play it really came down to falling in love with these characters, right? Um, Tree is probably the most synthetic because I had begun writing the play before I really knew much about him. And there honestly isn't a whole lot about him available. At least there wasn't when I was writing this play. But I think, I think I'm true to the spirit of Shaw and Stella, if not actually their verbiage. One of the biggest challenges, of course, is Shaw has a very distinctive voice. And I... I do not think I come anywhere near capturing that voice, but I do believe we're capturing the spirit of of the character. I mean, I really, I I have a soft spot for George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) Definitely. And he was a very important writer who was instrumental in transitioning away from romanticism into naturalism. And as the cast and I explored the text in rehearsals, we identified a number of themes running throughout the play. But the main thing that seemed to drive Shaw was the need to be, quote, modern. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means in this time period and how it affected his ability to connect with the other characters? Sure. There was, at the turn of the 20th century, was very similar to the times that we're living in now, in that everyone was aware that they were at an inflection point in history and in culture and society. At that particular time, uh, the study of mankind, both scientific and social, was very big. And Shaw, in particular, was a uh, an activist playwright. I think it's fair to say he had some very clear-cut political views. They did evolve over time, but he also had. He also believed that mankind as a species was perfectible, which was a a thrust of philosophy at that time that permeated the arts and the sciences, politics, everything. And the thing about George Bernard Shaw is he was definitely a man of conviction, a man of ideals. He was a man of ethics. He had a code of conduct that he held himself up to, and he really did sort of expect everyone else to live up to that code of conduct as well. He believed that that code would improve the the 
conditions of society. Uh, you know, at that time, uh, the class structure was not all that different than what it is today with a wide gap in uh, economics and economic status. Uh, you were either very rich or very poor, and the middle classes were, were fighting to keep from being poor and struggling to be very rich. Uh, and Shaw was very much a socialist, and he did not believe in, in that sort of economic structure. And socialism was a very modern concept at that time. So being very modern and rejecting the old, the old empirical uh, regency of Victoria uh, was, very, was a very big deal for him. Yeah, and it's interesting that Stella and Tree seemed to really hold on to those romantic roots. They didn't really want to let go of them in this transition. And I'm wondering if you see a connection, like, I mean, like I do, between that and our modern theater, how some of the theater coming out nowadays is trying to push us ahead, push us ahead, while others are still very much holding on to those old stereotypes or tropes. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do, I do have, I have thoughts on everything, but yes, I do have thoughts on that in particular, um, because it's easy to sort of romanticize Stella and Tree and think of them as being artists, but in point of fact, they were really merchants, and both of them were very aware of the box office and produced theater that would enrich them. Uh, Tree was very successful and um, very comfortable, but Stella never really was, right? Her, her start in life was so tenuous that a career in the theater looked like her best viable financial option, right? And by the time she went on stage, she'd already had her daughter, um, and that was the only way that she could support herself. Her husband was a mercenary of some kind, not, not, not a soldier, but he, he would travel abroad to make his living, which was never very strong. So by the time you get to Pygmalion, you've got, you know, Tree was 60 and Stella was 49. You've got people who are looking at ways to support themselves when they no longer are needed or wanted on the stage. So their prime focus was selling tickets. Shaw, on the other hand, uh, also had come up not wealthy, but he had managed to marry well. And at the time of Pygmalion, he, his was a name that people recognized, but he had never had a huge financial success. Pygmalion turned out to be it, and only after he had disavowed any connection to it. Um, but I am seeing in theaters today, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic when most arts organizations have struggled. In Chicago here, there have been a number of organizations that just simply did not survive. Uh, and I had written a play that I was sending out during the pandemic, and I had taken a lot of classes um, throughout the pandemic. And I was very much aware that what was being written was either plays about the pandemic, plays about Nazis, 
plays about Nazis in a pandemic. And the plays that I was, I was sort of seeing coming down the pike were very bleak. And for my money, that was not, that was probably not the economically the best approach to take to producing, making a product that theaters would want, right? And as theaters are reopening here in Chicago, you are seeing a lot of tried and true um, being offered here in the initial openings. You know, there are productions of Forever Plaid, um, Godspell, you know, things, things that before the pandemic, these theaters would never, ever have touched. They are now producing in hopes of surviving. So I, I get it. That said, because I have taken these classes, um, and I typically am the oldest one in the class, sometimes by several decades, but what I am seeing uh, are playwrights who are fearless in their approach to what they are wanting to put on stage, um, either how deeply personal the material is that they're generating, or new forms combining combining uh, genres and tropes to come up with something new. Uh, we have we have a number of theaters here in Chicago that uh, are experimenting with the administration, the creation and the administration of theaters. Uh, Chicago is rich with theater programs. You know, Northwestern, DePaul, Columbia. Uh, all local, and then we have the University of Illinois. Uh, all of all of these programs and others are generating classes that are stepping out in Chicago and creating something fresh and new. A lot of them are doing it with absolutely no money, and I, I don't mean you know they're able to save fifty bucks out of their allowances. They have no money, and they are creating theater. Uh, it, it's a it's a very exciting time to be part of the theater, but it's not for the faint of heart at this point. Well said. I really appreciate your thoughts on that. It is a tricky period of time. And as a producer, I understand these questions you say these theaters are facing. Absolutely. But let's get back to the show. For those of us who aren't familiar with the history, can you give us some details about what happened to Shaw and Stella after Pygmalion? Well... Shaw was very adamant that what he was writing was a play about two uh, intellectual and emotional equals. But Tree and Stella, based on their sort of economic approach to theater, did not believe that that, that play that Shaw had written would necessarily sell tickets. And very quickly after it opened, it was popular, but Tree and Stella sort of turned the play into a romantic comedy. Uh, and Shaw was furious about that and disavowed any relationship to the play. He subsequently wrote this postscript or this epilogue that I mentioned earlier, you know, articulating what he was trying to do in that play and what happened to those characters after the end of the play. But this really did sour his relationship with Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Uh, and ultimately what he did was he gave her the play. 
He said, you do with it what you want, make as much money as you can, but I don't want to have anything more to do with it. And she did. She rode, she rode that pony all the way to town and uh, took it to New York and revived it a couple of times, put it in her repertory. She did a number of uh, revivals of the second Mrs. Tangeray. Um, she had done Candida, Hedda Gabler. Those were sort of her staple roles. But as I said, when Pygmalion hit, she was 49 and nobody was, and this was uh, 1914, and nobody was doing much in the way of theater during the World War. So she, she comes out of, out of the World War several decades too old for the role of Eliza, and it's really the only thing that she can produce that people will see. So it meant that she was running out of money as she got older. And as such, she would reach out to friends, particularly George Bernard Shaw, for money. And he would grumble and grouse, but he would give it to her. His letters, I can't remember who they were with, I think it might have been Helen Terry, were published. Helen Terry published their correspondence. And Mrs. Patrick Campbell asked permission to do the same. And because the correspondence was so intimate, he did not give permission. And she hounded him and hounded him. And ultimately, he gave permission to, to publish correspondence only if he could edit it. And of course, he removed and actually destroyed some of the more intimate letters because he did not want to embarrass his wife. Um, the existing correspondence ultimately was published after his death. But like I said, a great number of pieces were destroyed. Um, to my mind, that could only be because it was proof of an affair. But there is no way, of course, knowing that. Uh, Stella lived in France, I think because it was more, it was more economically feasible. Uh, but as she got older, Shaw offered to bring her back to England and support her. And she refused because she couldn't bring her dogs. She was devoted to her, to her Pekingese. Uh, and so she ultimately died in Paris. Um, and Shaw, of course, died in England. Uh, their, their relationship was strained. Uh, throughout. I don't think they actually ever saw each other after Pygmalion. Only, con only conducted a relationship through correspondence. And it, it, it's clear that he maintained the relationship out of a, what, he, what seems to be a sense of duty. And to my mind, that duty could only, the only duty that would really hold him to it would be a miscarriage. A pregnancy and a miscarriage. Now that's merely my supposition, but you can look at their biographies and see points that could support such a hypothesis. Fascinating. There's so much of that you beautifully wove into this play. So Scott, I have one last question for you. What prompted the title and then Galatea laughed? Well, of course, I had to look up Pygmalion. And Pygmalion was a sculptor, and he was a sculptor who fell in love with his creation, 
which was a statue of Galatea. And while he fell in love with her, it's, it's sort of my feeling that for a mortal to make a god la- fall in love with you, he'd have to make her laugh. And that is sort of what I, that is sort of how I think was the basis of the relationship between Shaw and Stella, right? She was something of a, a theatrical goddess at the time. Uh, and he was a mere mortal. He really wasn't much to look at, but he, he figuratively at least, charmed the pants off of all of the most beautiful women in London. And uh, the, only way he, the only way he could have done that was with humor. So that's, that's how I came up with the title, is, is while Pygmalion might have fallen in love with the statue, the statue could only return that love if he made her laugh. Hmm. Well, Scott, are there any last thoughts you have about the play that you'd like to share with us? As far as last thoughts about the play, you know, it, as I get older, I, I become more and more aware of the stories that are put center stage, so to speak. And romance after a certain age just is not, not a topic that is, is looked at at all. And, and mature, mature relationships between men and women um, aren't really explored. And so I would like to think that I have contributed in some small way to that conversation, right? Opened up the door a little bit for people to consider what happens after the first blush of, of romance fades. That's incredible. Yeah, th- you're right. There's definitely a drought in that part of our repertoire. Well, Scott, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a real privilege being able to work on this piece. Thank you. I'm very excited to hear hear the final production of this. I, I've sat on the rehearsals and they were amazing. I can't wait to see how it all turns out. Well, thanks for entrusting us with it. Do you have a question for Scott? Find Premiere the Play on Facebook and Instagram to ask your question. We'll forward all questions onto our playwrights and get their responses. Now, I hope you've been enjoying the season so far, but we only have one week left and we haven't quite reached our goal of 2,000 listens. We're so close, but you know what this means, right? It means it is time for you to push us over the finish line by sharing Premiere the Play with anyone and everyone that comes to mind. You know Water Cooler Wendy from work will love this podcast. So thank you for your support and for joining us for this special bonus episode. And stay tuned for a brand new play coming next week. You've been listening to Premiere the Play, featuring new plays from around the world. Produced by Dean Productions, a 501c3 nonprofit. Like what you hear? Visit our website for past episodes and to make a tax-deductible donation.